Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first hundred days of the Trump administration. Day 54, on which the president continues to learn one of the lessons of making it to the big leagues. Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. Nobody knew. Who could have known? On these Tuesday Indivisible episodes, we keep track of how this unbound president is challenging American norms for better or for worse. Maybe when it comes to health care, as we just heard there, the norms of health care politics are challenging him. And remember, this is the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles and actually listen to our fellow Americans across political lines. We will definitely do that tonight with a libertarian think tank guest and a journalist guest who has some very different opinions and your calls as we get to them in a little while. Don't call yet. I'll give you the phone number with a specific question in a couple of minutes. But our topic tonight is how norms are changing on health care in America. Let's start by listening to some history. The liberal battle to establish health care as a right goes back at least to President Harry Truman in 1948. The greatest gap in our social security structure is the lack of adequate provision for the nation's health. We are rightly proud of the high standards of medical care we know how to provide in the United States. The fact is, however, that most of our people cannot afford to pay for the care they need. I have often and strongly urged that this condition demands a national health program. The heart of the program must be a national system of payment for medical care based on well-tried insurance principles. This great nation cannot afford to allow its citizens to suffer needlessly from the lack of proper medical care. Our ultimate aim must be a comprehensive insurance system to protect all our people equally against insecurity and ill health. President Harry Truman in his State of the Union address in 1948, but you never heard that before, the controversial norm there, social responsibility for health care as a right. Now, it's easy for us to forget that it was only 50 years ago, the mid-1960s, that the United States had no Medicaid, government health insurance for the poor, and no Medicare, government health insurance for the elderly. Here is President Lyndon Johnson signing Medicare into law on July 30th, 1965. No longer will older Americans be denied the healing miracle of modern medicine. No longer will illness crush and destroy the savings that they have so carefully put away over a lifetime so that they might enjoy dignity in their later years. No longer will young families see their own incomes 
and their own hopes eaten away simply because they're carrying out their deep moral obligations to their parents and to their uncles and their aunts. And no longer will this nation refuse the hand of justice to those who have given a lifetime of service and wisdom and labor to the progress of this progressive country. President Lyndon Johnson in 1965, health care as a right for the old and the poor was established as an American norm. Jimmy Carter tried and failed to enact a national health care system. Even Richard Nixon tried and failed. And famously, Bill Clinton tried and failed with Hillary Clinton running the effort. One of the things that brought them down was this ad from the insurance industry that is so reminiscent of the debate we're having today. It was a fictional couple named Harry and Louise having a conversation. This was covered under our old plan. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Things are changing, and not all for the better. The government may force us to pick from a few health care plans designed by government bureaucrats. Having choices we don't like is no choice at all. They choose. We lose. For reforms that protect what we have, call toll-free. Know the facts. If we let the government choose, we lose. Call today. A Harry and Louise insurance industry ad from 1993 or 94, I'm not sure. The norm of choice competing with the norm winning out over the norm of, that is, the norm of choice competing with and winning out over the norm of universal coverage. Now, flash forward to the president, uh, to the present. Obamacare, now under pressure seems to have planted some new norms in the population that weren't there before 2009. Insurance companies should not be allowed to deny customers based on pre-existing conditions or impose lifetime caps on benefits for expensive illnesses or kick young adults off their parents' plans until age 26. Now, they're not set in stone quite yet, but the Paul Ryan, Donald Trump-endorsed Obamacare replacement bill does seek to enshrine those standards as norms, even as it challenges many others. Among the norms very much still unresolved, should health insurance in America be considered a right? Should it also be considered a responsibility, like car insurance, to help keep rates down for the sick and the old? Or is the right not to have insurance a more fundamental expression of the American norm of freedom? It's clear where Paul Ryan stands on this. The point is, a lot of people who you just mentioned, I think they'd like to see us continue to make Americans buy what we say they should buy. We don't agree with the Speaker of the House on CBS Face the Nation Sunday, where he kept framing the debate around the norm of freedom. Let me put it this way. Obamacare is collapsing. If we just did nothing, washed our hands of the situation, we would see a further collapse of the health insurance markets. So we feel an obligation to step in front of that collapse and replace, replace this law with one that works, that has more freedom. Freedom. There was that time, and this time... Obamacare, which is crashing and blowing up our fiscal problem, and repealing it and replacing it with good tax policy that equalizes the tax treatment of health care and gives people more choice and more freedom. And again. And the beautiful thing about this plan that we're proposing, it's more freedom, it's more choices, it's more markets, it's lower prices, which gets us better access. Paul Ryan, Freedom. On CBS Face the Nation Sunday, Democrats define freedom differently. Beyond that, how much should taxpayers subsidize insurance? for your neighbors based on income? And what standards of coverage, if any, should all insurance policies be required to meet? 
So it's libertarian versus communitarian values in a changing America on tonight's Indivisible. Let me look for a certain group of you to call in right now from around the country. People who voted for Donald Trump but get your health insurance through Obamacare. That's right. If you voted for Donald Trump and you're on an Obamacare exchange policy or Obamacare expanded Medicaid, this is an invitation specifically for you to call in. How is your Obamacare policy working out for you? Did you vote for Trump because you're unhappy with your Obamacare, or did you vote for Trump despite being happy with your Obamacare insurance? Either way, if you voted for Trump but are on Obamacare, we're inviting you to share your health insurance story. Phone number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. If you voted for Donald Trump but you get insurance through Obamacare, give us a call. Tell us your health insurance story, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. You are invited. And as your calls are coming in, we welcome our guests, Sarah Cliff, who writes about health care for the news organization Vox, founded by the progressive-leaning Ezra Klein, and Michael Cannon, director of health policy studies for the Libertarian Cato Institute. He's in the camp that says the Trump-Ryan bill does not undo Obamacare enough. Sarah and Michael, we really appreciate you engaging tonight. Welcome to Indivisible. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll get into the weeds of the bill inevitably to some degree, but since this Tuesday night series is about norms, let me start with a very basic question of norms. Speaker Ryan in those clips insisted on people's right not to buy health insurance, but President Obama's bill tried to establish a norm that buying health insurance is a responsibility, the best way in his view to make sure that there's enough money in the system that people don't get soaked just because they get sick or get old. Michael, how would you start to describe your own position on the tension between those competing norms of freedom and responsibility? Well, I think that there's, it's a false choice to say there is a tension between freedom and responsibility because uh, it, freedom means responsibility. It means that you have the, the right to choose whether you're going to buy health insurance, what kind of health insurance to buy, what kind of medical care you're going to consume. And if you make bad decisions, then you are responsible for those decisions. You don't get to pass the cost of your bad decisions off onto other people. However, if you but wait, let me, let, me jump in on that for, let me jump in on that for a second, because well, Obama would argue that you are passing the cost of your bad decision onto other people if you're young and healthy and you choose not to buy insurance. Well, but that's sloppy thinking, and think about it. it. When you say you're passing the cost off onto other people, those other people have a say in the matter, too, you know. Those other people can choose to say... I will help you, and they can choose to say I will not help you. And you are you're, you're pretending they're not making a choice there. And if you say that, well, of course they're going to help, and of course they should help, that's fine. But then if they want to take away other people's freedom in order to pay for their preferences, that is not responsibility. That is the opposite of responsibility. That is shifting the cost of your decisions onto other people. So when you when you're trying to create this this dichotomy between freedom and responsibility, it's actually a false choice when you are uh, a, a, a society that respects people's right to make their own decisions, promotes responsibility, a society that declares that uh, you have a right to other people's income to satisfy your preferences is one that discourages personal responsibility. Sarah Cliff, same question. <laughs> 
So, you know, I come at this from less of a point of view. I cover the Affordable Care Act for Fox. And I think right now we kind of have a web of healthcare laws that really pull us in different directions. We, you know, have a law that requires that all hospitals um, take people no matter what the, whether they can pay their bills. It's called EMTALA. And it says that if someone shows up and they have a life-threatening condition, hospitals are required to see that person. But at the same time, we don't go as far as saying, and everyone has to pay insurance. Everyone has to be on the hook for their medical bills. So we're kind of a country that has taken one step towards saying, we think it is valuable that everyone have access to life-saving treatment. We passed this EMTALA law in the 1980s. We have not gone all the way to saying, we think it is important that everyone have a health insurance plan. And that kind of leaves the United States in a really unique and different position from any other developed country where we both have hospitals required to see people to make sure, you know, that they're stabilized, but at the same time do not have, or um, until we had the ACA, did not have that requirement that people are contributing into the healthcare system like you were describing. Let's take our first caller. It's Jason in Atlanta. Hi, Jason. You're on Indivisible. Thanks a lot for calling. Hey, good evening. So you voted for Trump, but you have ACA insurance? Well, I have ACA insurance because of the policies that are in place requiring me to do so. I I can't afford $6,000 a year health insurance, so I can't get it elsewhere, but I can afford very limited health insurance through the ACA. How old are you? 26. And were it not for the requirements of the ACA, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, all the same thing, were it not for those requirements, would you choose to go uninsured? I would choose to have a very limited and realistically priced health care plan. Someone who's 26 and pretty healthy shouldn't have to spend about $3,500 a year on health care if he doesn't go to the doctor very often or need to. So is that one of the things you're hoping that Donald Trump will bring about, sort of deregulate the system enough that insurance for you and your particular young, healthy uh, condition will go down? I am. Unfortunately, the Affordable Care Act places a pretty big burden on the young and healthy to pay for the older and less healthy, but that's as unrealistic as placing no health care burden on anyone at all. Right. So let me try out a norm on you. Should taxpayers, in your opinion, subsidize in some way health insurance for those who can't afford it? Well, the question you're asking is, should be more phrased, not do Americans have a right to health care, but instead, do Americans have a right to pay for others? A responsibility. Everyone has a right to health care. Everyone has a right to smile. Everyone has a right to happiness. But if you ask others to pay for it, then you're not really asking if they should have a right to it. No, I'm saying should they have an obligation through tax policy or anything else, in your opinion, to subsidize in some way health insurance for those who can't afford it? My answer is some health insurance for those who can't afford it. But you have what's called a moral hazard problem. If everyone has health insurance, everyone will use their health insurance and doctor's visits more often. If everyone is forced to be a little bit more, let's use the word, frugal with their doctor's visits, then the rest of us won't have to pay quite as much for people who aren't trying to go to the doctors as often. Jason, thank you very much for starting us off. I really appreciate it. Our lines are open for people who voted for Donald Trump but who have health insurance through the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. Sarah Cliff, um, this is one of the things that we do keep hearing 
from Donald Trump and Paul Ryan and the others who are getting behind this bill or even going further with repealing Obamacare, uh, that the health care um, burden, I should say the insurance burden, on people exactly like Jason in Atlanta, 26-year-old, healthy guy, um, insurance is too expensive because the Obamacare mandates for what's in an insurance policy have so much uh, overstuffing, in his opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it can work if they deregulate it in that way? Well, I think you'd have a different health insurance system, but I think it's one that could certainly be stable. I think you saw the Obama administration, they came to health reform with kind of a set of ideals that drove how they did it. They thought it was important that all health insurance plans um, you have this robust set of benefits, including mental health services, including maternity care. And that is great. If you are someone who uses a lot of health care, you want all those you want all of those benefits mandated because then the costs get spread out across everyone. That raises your premiums. If you're someone who was younger, buying a skimpier plan, the Obama administration, you know, they decided that this was a worthwhile trade-off, that they felt good about asking healthier people to pay more and um, being and using that to make insurance more affordable for for uh, people who are sicker. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a trade-off. I mean, you are asking healthy people to pay more. And one of the things we've seen is that young people, like our last caller, they haven't signed up in as high of numbers as the Obama administration would have liked. So there's constant trade-offs in healthcare, and this is one of them. So, Michael, one of the ways that conservatives are unhappy with the Trump-Ryan plan is that it still coerces people to buy insurance with a one-time 30% penalty on the premium if you stop owning insurance for a while and then you get back in. That's one of the reasons some people call it Obamacare light. Is that one of your objections? Not really. That's more the loosening of Obamacare's price controls in certain respects than it is a mandate. But the problem with the Ryan plan is that it retains for the federal government all the powers that Obamacare created and would do nothing to, and therefore would do nothing to eliminate the instability that exists in insurance markets right now because of. Obamacare's price controls on health insurance and other features, those provisions are are right now, well, they've caused a lot of insurance companies to, to flee the health insurance exchanges. You've got a 1,000 counties across the country right now where there's only one carrier left in the exchange. So they are one carrier exit away, these, these 3 million people in these counties, from having no exchange plans at all. And right now, uh, in East Tennessee, there are 16 counties where it looks like they will not have no exchange plans and at I'm all. And I'm going to jump in here because we have to go to a break, but we'll continue in a minute. Changing norms for health care in America on Indivisible tonight. Stay tuned. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Well, the AARP says that if you are 64 years of age, 
and you're making about 25000 a year, you're going to pay up to $7,000 more for your health insurance. They're going to defund Planned Parenthood, deny over 2 million women the right to choose the health care that they need. They're going to decimate Medicaid, which is why the American Medical Association, the AMA, and the American Hospital Association uh, oppose it in addition to the AARP. Bernie Sanders, <clears throat> excuse me, getting his say on Face the Nation Sunday. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. On these Tuesday Indivisible episodes, we keep track of how this unbound president is challenging American norms, for better or for worse. Tonight, it's how norms are changing on health care in America. And we're taking call this, calls this hour from a specific group of Americans who probably have very relevant stories to tell. If you voted for Trump and you're on an Obamacare exchange policy or Obamacare expanded Medicaid, this is an invitation specifically for you. How is your Obamacare policy working out for you? Did you vote for Trump because you're unhappy with your Obamacare? Or did you vote for Trump despite being happy with your Obamacare insurance? Either way, if you voted for Trump, but are on Obamacare, we are inviting you to share your health insurance story, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Our guests are Sarah Cliff, who writes about health care for Vox, and Michael Cannon, Senior Health Policy Fellow at the Cato Institute. Obamacare, Michael, seems to have planted some new norms in the population that weren't there before 2009. Insurance companies should not be allowed to deny customers based on pre-existing conditions or impose lifetime caps on benefits for expensive illnesses or kick young adults off their parents' plans until age 26. Are those now becoming entrenched norms, and is that a good thing in your view? Uh, I don't think they are becoming entrenched norms because uh, those provisions are pretty popular if you ask people in uh, public opinion surveys only about the supposed benefits of those provisions, keeping the kids on the health plan until they're 26 and uh, ending discrimination against uh, patients with pre-existing conditions. Those all poll very well up in the 60s, 70s, sometimes even in the 80s. We've done polling at the Cato Institute, however, where we ask not just about the benefits of those provisions but the costs. There are economists who have estimated that that dependent coverage mandate reduces wages for affected workers by $1,200, even if they don't have a dependent that's on the health plan. And so when you ask people, as we have, if they would support that provision, uh, they say yes. But then if you ask them, what if it cost you $1,200 in reduced wages, they, uh, the support flips to opposition. Same thing happens with the pre-existing condition provisions. When you ask people, do you support ending discrimination against by insurance companies against people with pre-existing conditions, they, they answer uh, two to one in the affirmative. But if you then ask them, what if that would reduce the quality of care that you receive, would you still support that uh, provision, two to one support, flips to two-to-one opposition, and that is what economists have documented is happening in the exchanges as a result of those very provisions, the coverage for people with high-cost illnesses like MS, cancer, arthritis, infertility, uh, the coverage for these uh, 
these illnesses is getting worse in Obamacare precisely so, because of those supposedly popular pre-existing condition provisions. So I don't think that there is a norm that's being established. I think that um, that, uh, that that those those uh, provisions became law without a full public discussion of the costs and benefits. Sarah, do you think those are becoming entrenched as new norms in the United States? And how would people push back on uh, the arguments that Michael just made? So I don't think they've become entrenched. And I think the fact we're seeing this big Obamacare repeal debate is really evidence of that, that, you know, Obamacare has been a law for seven years now. The Obama administration had some very clear ideas about how they wanted to reform the insurance market, how they felt the individual market should work. And there really has been a sustained campaign against those to, you know, argue that this is bad, that this is not how health insurance should work. So, you know, they really have not become entrenched in the way that a lot of experts had expected. There was this expectation really shared among um, President Obama's top advisors that once you rolled this law out, once people got the benefits, it'd become popular and the debate would end. And that's kind of what you saw with Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s. But you never really saw that with the Affordable Care Act. I think a lot of it goes back to the law being passed on a party line vote that Republicans really felt very free to push back against it. There were none of their colleagues who supported it. Um, you know, I recently did an interview with former Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, who says her biggest regret is not getting a Republican supporter of the Affordable Care Act, not because she thought there's more she could have done, but because it really let Republicans be free to criticize this and not um, have the norms take effect in the way the administration had expected and hoped. Brandon in St. Louis, you're on Indivisible. Brandon, thanks for calling. Oh, you're welcome. How are you doing? Pretty good. You voted for Trump, but you have Obamacare? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I, vo- I, I voted. I voted for Trump, um, and uh, we do. We do. We uh, we go through the exchange. Um, uh, I was telling the other lady I was talking to a minute ago that that one of the good things um, of it is is that my wife has a, uh, a device in her heart, um, and we're we're both we're both in our in our in our thirties. Um, it's a H receptacle device, and um, before they passed Obamacare, she couldn't uh, get health insurance. We tried through multiple companies, you know, um, and we were told to go through the Missouri Exchange because that nobody would accept her um, for you know for health insurance because of her device that's in her heart. And uh, after Obamacare passed, you know they you know they of course had to accept her on it. Um, but we have noticed though that that over the last three years our our premiums have gone up uh, about a hundred dollars a month. You know, we were paying we were paying around the around the three hundred dollar range, and now we're paying around the four hundred dollar range. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have seen our costs go up, and that's not because that. of your wife's condition. That's the cost that's going up for everybody in your state yeah. who buys the same policy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's just a steady, you know, a, a general steady, you know, price increase. And uh, I mean, not it's not it's not such a it's not so unaffordable right now, but me and my wife were discussing, and I said, okay, well, if it goes up $100 a year, you know, what's going to happen in six, seven years from now? I mean, is it going to be $1,000 a month? Because then, it, because then it is then it is a burden at that point. Yeah. So do you, you have know? your head around any particular changes that you would like to see the new president and new Congress make that would bring down your health insurance costs? Because, of course, we see how you push here and it pops out over there and you push there and it pops out over here. So is there a trade-off? if you've been following this in the news that you would like to see them make? 
I mean, you know, maybe, you know, uh, maybe a standardization of prices, you know, across the board on stuff on maybe, you know, types of medications, you know, Um, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, life-saving medications, you know, that, you know, medicines that people have to have, diabetes medicines and that kind of stuff, Um, you know, maybe like a general price across the board. Price controls, government price controls. Yeah, you know, saying, "Hey, listen, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, charge and you know, you know, prices negligible to who's buying yeah. it." I guess, but I guess you're happy you know. with the pre-existing conditions um, requirement that insurance companies accept them, considering yeah, your wife's yeah. condition. Yeah, if, yeah. If they were to, if they were to drop, if they were to completely drop, you know, drop the Affordable Care Act, um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be totally opposed to that as long as that pre-existing condition stayed in there because that 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 is important to us that that stays in there because if not, my wife can't get health insurance. Brandon, thank you so much for your call and good luck to you and your wife. Let's go right to Bill in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Bill, you're on Indivisible. Hi there. Good evening, folks. I I uh, I, I mean this sincerely. I, I really don't mean this in a. In a in a derogatory way, but I can't believe we as Americans are having a conversation. We who who subscribe to free market economy, you know, we, how can we be talking about a an unsustainable program like an Affordable Care Act or for, or whatever the Trump organization is going to come up with? How can we really look at this as American citizens when? The people in Congress get free health care, and yet they get to provide us with whatever they think is affordable for us. Why are we not having that conversation? Why are we not talking about the fact that if we want to lower the price of health care by about 90 percent, we have to deregulate this thing and let people pay the majority of their maintenance for their health care out of their own pocket? Uh, rather than what we have now. Well, let me I, let me I, uh, let me hit you with I, a let me hit you with a norms question. If we went yeah. all the way to free market, then the last caller's wife in St. Louis would be denied by a health insurance company because she's a woman in her thirties and she has a heart condition. Good idea. Yes. Well, let me answer it this way: it, that that what you're describing there is is not sustainable. Either if the system is going to break down, if not today, tomorrow, or next year. You cannot continue to have hospitals provide free health care or, or, or unpayable health care for three, four out of ten patients that are walking in the door. No business can manage that. And for, for whatever reason, we expect hospitals and, and, and practitioners to be able to sort of limit mm. prices. We can't do that for for pack of, you know, for a, t- a dozen eggs these days. Here. We can't do it you for, know, a, for things- a dozen eggs, but with health insurance, somebody like that guy's wife might die unless we socialize, if I could use that word, health care to some degree or regulate it. How did we do it before, before health care became industrialized? How did we manage these kinds of situations? Well, we heard we in the Harry Truman and LBJ clips that people were either going broke or dying at a higher rate. That's what they would argue if they were alive. I, I would tell you that the, the hospitals hospitals were run by churches that did it through charity, through real charity. People using their own money out of their own pocket to provide, to be charitable. There's and, nothing charitable about what we're doing and, now. And All you're willing doing, to take that risk, that for some people they may run into a good charitable uh, lane and some people may not. I, I have faith in the American... I have faith in the average American to be charitable. We're more charitable than anybody else is in the world. 
Bob, uh, Bill, forgive me. Thank you very much for your call. I appreciate it. We're going to go right to Selena in Stockbridge, Georgia. Selena, you're on Indivisible. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good. You voted for Trump, but you have Obamacare? I do not have Obamacare. I've never had Obamacare, but I've always been under my husband's plan through his employer. Uh-huh. And what happened in 2014 was his employer said that because they had to be compliant with the Affordable Care Act, they could no longer insure me under his plan that they effectively were kicking me off of his plan because I was a working spouse. And so now I have my own plan through my own employer. And when I was under my husband's plan, we only paid a $300 deductible to have an uncomplicated uh, delivery of our second born. And now with our third born, because I'm on my own plan and it doesn't pay as well, my employer does not pay as well, my out-of-pocket expense is going to be $6,850 for uncomplicated delivery. What do you think would be the solution, if you've thought about it, for you to have the kind of coverage that would cover this delivery in a better way? The solution, I'm not sure. I know it's a very complicated process, and originally I was for Obamacare because I thought that it would help a lot of us Americans who didn't have access. And I'm not a sick individual, so I can't say how that affects me by not having insurance because I've always had insurance. But I wasn't allowed to keep my same doctor. The things that they told us about Obamacare, they lied about. I was not allowed to keep my same doctor. I was kicked off my husband's plan. Our insurance premiums have increased. Our deductibles have more than went up 400%. Um, and it's, it's killing us. I mean, I don't know how we're supposed to pay for this. We're not wealthy. We're just regular middle-class middle class family. And now we're having to pay $6,800 to have a, a uncomplicated delivery. And... I don't know what the answer is, but it's not Obamacare. Selena, good luck to you. Thank you very much. Michael Cannon from Cato. Well, my first concern is I hope Selena is trying to negotiate that $6,800 down because patients often don't know that they can do that. So I hope she is trying to do that. Um, I hear Selena's uh, story, and it's like so many other stories that I've heard of people who have uh, insurance through an employer, and then that insurance is interrupted for all sorts of reasons it happens. Uh, uh, if, if the employer just drops spousal coverage, if someone turns 26 or 65, if they change jobs, if the, employ- if the plant shuts down, if they divorce or a spouse dies, uh, and oftentimes this happens after someone has uh, developed an expensive medical condition. And uh, and then that medical condition, which should have been an insured condition, usually would be if they were uh, if they had purchased insurance directly from an insurance company, uh, is then an uninsurable pre-existing condition, and that is what actually created, or at least uh, greatly exacerbated, is mostly responsible for the problem that that Obamacare is trying to solve this this problem of people with pre-existing conditions, like like Brandon's wife. And, um, and and I think that is one of the downsides of trying to declare a right to health care. Who's going to enforce that right? It's going to be the government. 
And the government is what gave us this employment-based system that fuels this problem of pre-existing conditions and has for 70 years. So I really hope that Selena is able to get those prices, uh, negotiate that price down. I would, uh, but we're not going to solve this, or this, this, this problem until we eliminate the preference that the government has created for employer-sponsored insurance, which is really a penalty on people who don't obtain it, because that, that fundamental error the government made back in the 1940s has been fueling mm-hmm. our health care problems Sa- ever since. Sarah Cliff, how would the Democrats push back on that? So I, I think this is actually a place where the Democrats do agree with that last policy suggestion Michael was making, getting rid of the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance. This is actually part of the Affordable Care Act. The Cadillac tax is um, a tax on high-cost health insurance plans, but it turns out it's very politically unpopular to um, to do that. A lot of people get health insurance at work. It would essentially raise the cost of health insurance at work, so you see immediate backlash to this. Um, Republicans wanted to do this in their replacement plan, but after they saw, you know, some intense lobbying against it, they they dropped it out of the American Health Care Act. I, I think Democrats would really seize on this suggestion from that first caller that we had in this stream of folks um, about price regulation. And I know this is a place where um, Michael Neer certainly disagrees, but you know, nearly every other developed country, the way they provide health insurance to all of their um, citizens is by regulating the price of health care, by treating it like a utility, just like electricity, something that you need to stay alive, and therefore the government has a role in regulating it. And there certainly are trade-offs. Um, when you regulate prices, you also have to say no to drugs that are too expensive. Um, this is a constant controversy in Britain, where um, the national health care system there says that they won't cover certain expensive cancer drugs, for example, that they just don't think are worth the price. But it really seems like one of the fundamental things that makes our healthcare system so expensive is not that we go to the doctor more than people in European countries. It's the fact that when we do go to the doctor, we just pay so much more for everything, whether it's a childbirth or an MRI or a pill, like the exact same pill that you're getting abroad. And I have to jump in and say we're going to go to a break and then we'll continue on Indivisible with how norms are changing on healthcare in America. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Tonight, it's how norms are changing on health care in America. And we've taken calls in our first two blocks only from people who voted for Trump but also have Obamacare. You folks can keep calling, but we'll also open it up to anyone else who wants to talk about health care norms, what they are, where they've been, what they should be, one 745 talk 
844-745-8255-844-745-TALK. We're still with Sarah Cliff, who writes about health care for Vox, and Michael Cannon, the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. And here's a line we've been hearing a lot in the last week from House Speaker Paul Ryan, one of his health insurance norms. This is repealing and replacing Obamacare. So this first part is very, very important. It repeals the entire fiscal pieces of the law and replaces it with patient-centered system. How about that norm, patient-centered health care? We hear that a lot these days, patient-centered health care and give patients choice. Uh, But, Michael, let me try a thought experiment and go all the other way the other way from you. If that's really the norm, patient-centered health care, why wouldn't you want a single-payer system like in Canada? Every doctor is in the system, so patients have ultimate choice. In our system, let's face it, almost every private insurance policy limits you these days to only in-plan doctors or much higher costs to have more choice. So if choice is the thing, then why wouldn't it be Canadian-style single-payer? Well, I think the golden rule applies. You know, if you want to know on whom the system is centered, whom the system serves, look at who controls the money, because every economic system, whether it be capitalism, socialism, anything in between, is going to serve the people who control the money. And in the Canadian system that you mentioned, the money is controlled by the government, and uh, the national government, the provincial government, and so it follows uh, political um, uh, imperatives. Uh, it serves the needs of the politicians who control that money, whereas if individuals uh, control the money, then the system is oriented toward them and serves them. And that's certainly not the case here in the United States. Here, the government does control more than half of medical spending uh, directly. I would argue it controls another 30% of medical spending in the United States indirectly by penalizing us unless we spend our money the way the government wants hmm. us to spend it. Or an- and, another and way that, to I look... Think, and that right there, I think, accounts for a lot of the frustration that Americans have with health care, including with high prices in health care. And it's because we're not controlling the money, the system doesn't serve us, and we, we also don't spend other people's money as carefully as we spend our own. But single-payer progressive, progressives would say... Um, The government is our democracy, so we have a say. We have less say when the health insurance companies uh, control our money that we spend on them, that in a pure market system with no government role, liberals would say the only people who have good health care are the people who can afford it. The best care will be really great, paid for by the rich patients. The lower your income, the lousier insurance policy you'll have with high deductibles or the more you'll go bankrupt because you didn't buy the lousy insurance and then you got expensively ill. So how would you argue against that? Well, the libertarian might respond that you're ascribing to a market system the failures of a government-run system. You uh, had uh, Lyndon Johnson speaking uh, earlier uh, from the signing ceremony for Medicare and Medicaid. Through those two programs, the federal government and state governments have pumped billions and trillions of dollars of subsidies into the health care sector. Through the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance, the federal government has encouraged people to purchase more and more health insurance, and that encourages them to consume more and more medical care. And we're wondering why prices are so incredibly high. We're 
wondering why the system doesn't serve the patients and instead serves the special interests who are able to tell Congress how Medicare should pay for medical care, what it should buy, uh, keep the prices for Medicare, uh, 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 that Medicare pays as high as they would like it to be. But Lyndon Johnson would say, by, by definition almost, because older people are so expensive to insure or to provide health care for, direct health care, um, that unless you have something like Medicare, socializing the cost of it, then you really are going to have death by income level. I don't think that's the case. And again, you're assuming that the prices are going to be as high as they have been as a result of Medicare. I don't think they would be as high. I think we would see if, if all we did in the United States is change who controls the money. And that means you could keep the Medicare program, but just turn it into a Social Security-like program where all you're doing is giving seniors cash. And then they, have it, they would have an incentive to shop around for lower prices, and, and it, providers would have to give them that price information or else they wouldn't get the money from seniors. You would see prices plummet, and it would and you could still subsidize the needy, but it would be much easier to do because the prices would be so much lower than they are right now when you have just rampant third-party payment. And, and again, no one uh, spending other people's money as carefully as they spend Steve. their own. Steve in Louisville, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Steve. Hi. So... You know, we're a Republican family, a low-income Republican family. We voted for Trump uh, this time around. We voted for him because we weren't happy with the way the Democrats were running the economy, and the economy was not growing as fast as it needed to, in our opinion. And Trump made the promise that, uh, yeah, we were going to repeal Obamacare, but we were going to replace it with something much better. Well, my wife's a diabetic. Before we had uh, uh, Obamacare, she had to go to clinics, and she could never keep her diabetes under control. Now that we're under Obamacare, she's got a a, a better doctor, a regular doctor, and she's on better meds, and her diabetes is actually under control. With this plan that uh, the Republicans have put forth, and I've said for the last seven years that the Republicans – had no plan whatsoever for what they were going to do after they repealed Obamacare, that they were just using that as a whipping post for the Democrats. And it's turning out to be true because this plan that they put forth is no no plan at all because, you know, people are going to suffer for this. People are going to die because of this plan. And it is wrong. It is un-American to do what the Republican Party is doing. So i got to tell you, uh, starting in my district, uh, our uh, state, uh, our um, congressional House member is up for re-election next year. If he votes for this plan, I guarantee you my wife and I will be voting against him. And yeah. we're probably going to change parties over this, huh. and we're never coming back. Did you once vote? we change parties, we're gone forever. Did you vote for Trump, I'm curious? Yes. You did vote for Trump. Despite yep. him saying repeal and replace ACA, or because you thought he would have a better replacement? His exact words, we're going to replace it with something much better. Steve, thank you very Those much. Are his words. Thank, thank you very much. I appreciate your call. Marilyn in Chicago, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Marilyn. Hi. So my comment um, is that I never hear um, people discussing the 
potential risk out there to um, Americans with uninsured um, people who are unable to access health care in the event of a disaster like a pandemic and an epidemic. And my comparison is I work in flood control and we have the National Flood Insurance Program. And that's there to help people during disasters like floods. And unfortunately, we know the flood insurance program is overwhelmed and in debt, like I fear this health um, program would also become. But it is there in the event of disaster. Mm -hmm. And the only way I believe solvency can happen with the flood insurance program is if it's a one nationwide program where everyone has required flood insurance because we know we have flood damages well outside of the 100-year regulatory floodplain. Marilyn, thank you very much for that. So Sarah Cliff from Vox, this brings us all the way back to something we started with early, early in the hour about the individual mandate. Why don't we hear from Democrats more frequently a defense of the individual mandate based on the flood insurance model that Marilyn was talking about or the car insurance model that I mentioned before where everybody has to pay in so there's enough money in the pool when somebody has a flood or somebody has a car accident or somebody gets sick in the case of health insurance. It's not such a foreign concept in the United States, mandatory insurance, and yet um, the Democrats let it take hold as this exotic thing under the ACA. Yeah, you know, I think they tried to make that comparison. I've had a lot of, uh, I've heard a lot of Democratic legislators make the comparison to car insurance. And I think, you know, those who oppose the Affordable Care Act, you know, the response I heard come up quite quickly was, well, I get to decide if I own a car and if I drive a car. And, you know, you're not letting me decide whether I want to participate in this. You're just requiring everybody. Um, So in that way, it does feel a little bit foreign in that it's something that we don't get to choose to participate in. And I think the Democrats' response has been, well, look, you don't really get to choose to participate in the healthcare system or not. You could have a heart attack. You could have some kind of debilitating event where you're going to be taken to a hospital and you might not be conscious that we're not really, you know, choosing consumers um, in the healthcare system. But, you know, I think you're right that it really took hold as a very unpopular idea in poll after poll. This is the least popular part of the Affordable Care Act. I think it, you know, also goes back to the fact that, you know, like I was saying earlier, there has been this sustained campaign for seven years now to uh, against the Affordable Care Act to kind of stop its implementation. I know Michael has been part of that campaign, kind of encouraging states not to move forward on it. And I think, you know, that worked. Like, it changed how people thought about the health care law, and they weren't receptive to the idea of this mandate at all. Kenny in Jacksonville, Florida, might be one of the people who is not receptive to the mandate. Kenny, you're on Indivisible. Hi there. Hi, how are you doing? Good. So I see from my screener that that you're not insured? Uh, I am not, no. How did that come about for you? And are you choosing to pay the uh, Affordable Care Act tax penalty as a better option for you? I have actually been exempt from that, uh, honestly. So I have not had to pay that. Um, I do have a coworker that had to pay it, which I seem kind of—it seems kind of odd since I make more than he does, but I was exempt and he wasn't. Um, like I was talking to your screener before, uh, one of the things that I don't see being discussed a whole lot is the fact that medicine is a for-profit industry, whereas a lot of the other countries, medicine is not for-profit. And I feel like 
regardless of what President Trump wants to do or what President Obama wanted to do with the ACA, I think the ACA might have been a good stepping stone, but I feel like it's just piling new brick on top of a crumbling foundation. And eventually it's going to get to a point where it's just all going to fall. I, I, I feel like that until something is in place where we can regulate how much we are actually spending in the medical side of whatever we are using, I, I don't think anything that we actually put into play is really going to benefit anybody other than one side or the other. Would you rather see government price controls, or would you rather take our guest Michael Cannon's solution and go much more toward a market system and hope competition brings it down? I would rather see it's kind of both one it's kind of both A and B. I would rather see the government say, okay, universal health care, you can go to a hospital and you won't have to pay a dime out of your pocket. We'll just take care of you whatever you have. But everyone who who actually works and pays into a tax, you know, let, let's say for argument's sake, the X percentage of poor people would pay one percent, the top ends pay fifteen percent into this pool you know, for, for health care. And, you know, that, that, that is how you would pay for that. But on the same time, I feel like doing that isn't going to be enough to work because we're not actually – medicine is for profit. So hospitals are still wanting to make money off of you and money off the sick. So using that, I don't think it's going to work until other mm-hmm. things are fixed. At least the foundation is fixed. Kenny, thank you very much. And actually, Sarah Cliff, hospitals, almost every hospital in this country is not-for-profit. Probably a lot of patients don't realize it, but pretty much every major hospital center is technically a not-for-profit organization. Tell me if I'm wrong. And yet, um, you know, they run their organizations like a business uh, so they don't lose money, and it feels like a business to the patients. Yeah, you know, I think it's true. Both a lot of hospitals, I'd add also health insurance companies are not-for-profit. Um, a lot of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans are currently and historically have been not-for-profit insurers. At the same time, if you look at what their CEOs are earning, they're very significant salaries. So I think it's both possible for these to be non-for-profits, also be businesses. And I think, you know, what you see in the dynamic there is that hospitals, you know, a lot of times they are the only hospital in the area and they can really make some steep demands of insurers of what they want to charge for everything from MRIs to appendectomies, these really standard procedures. They kind of have um, the upper hand of the bargaining table. So, you know, they are able to ask for very significant um, prices and they can plow those into building new buildings, creating more beds. And it kind of is this um, almost snowball effect where you're charging these high prices, you're bringing in more revenue, you're building a bigger hospital, and then you're trying to fill those beds, and it really kind of cycles uh, on that. Let me throw in one last idea here before we run out of time. We have about two minutes. Uh, This is from today, a complaint about a lousy health insurance policy. And of all people, it's from White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer from the Daily Press Briefing on when having an insurance card doesn't mean you're covered. Having a card and having coverage that when you walk into a doctor's office has a deductible of fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a year isn't coverage. Uh, that's, a, that's a card. That doesn't get you the care you need. It doesn't get, allow you to get the procedure 
or the referral that you need from a doctor that's telling you what you need to have happen. So, Michael Cannon, in about 30 seconds, why isn't that what Trump-Ryan Care would produce? If you deregulate standards in the name of patient choice and you get policies with cheap premiums but ridiculous deductibles, insurance cards without insurance coverage. Well, the Republicans are totally incoherent. They want people to have more choice, and they're complaining about what those choices they might make might be. Uh, the real problem, I think, uh, is uh, uh, with the when you give people insurance, uh, it is that you can declare that health care is a right, and you can give people an insurance card, say, through the Medicaid program, and say you have a right to, say, dental care. But if you cannot find a dentist that will treat your children, sometimes it has happened that uh, uh, that, that has, has proven a totally worthless promise. Yeah. We just passed a ten, the 10-year anniversary of the death of a young boy named Diamante Driver who died from an infection that began in an abscessed tooth, spread throughout his body, overwhelmed his system. And it could have been prevented with an $80 tooth mm-hmm. extraction, but even though the family was covered by Medicaid and his mother and a nonprofit made dozens of calls, they could not find a dentist that would see Diamante. Well, that is uh, a failure of insurance, not if people choose to buy health insurance policies mm-hmm. with a high deductible. Well, we certainly are not going to solve health care tonight, but we wanted to try framing it tonight in terms of competing norms It gets so confusing. Maybe we made a little progress tonight by understanding that we are all a little conflicted about this because we all value certain norms that don't fit together so easily. And maybe we can move forward a little bit more in this overheated moment as one country indivisible. Sarah Cliff from Vox and Michael Cannon from the Cato Institute, thanks so much for your contributions. Thank you. Thanks. Tomorrow night on Indivisible. Our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes, with Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. I'm Brian Lehrer. Thanks so much for listening tonight. You can keep the conversation going on our hashtag on Twitter using our hashtag, which is Indivisible Radio. I'll talk to you again next Tuesday here on Indivisible. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.